Tonight we are uh, continuing our little journey through Joel. And we started off last week with something of an introduction to um, this prophet. And so we're going to take up the first 12 verses tonight. And I'll, I'll call your attention then to verses uh, 1 through 12 of Joel chapter 1. This is the word of God. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. Well, the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. Well, the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin, wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray once more. Our Father, um, we thank you that this is the word given to Joel, and in your providence, because of your eternal decree, it was your your determination that what he wrote, at least this portion of what you proclaimed through Joel, should be written down and preserved even for us, so that where we live in this epoch, we could read these words, we can reflect we can apply them to our own lives, and we can find encouragement from them to live for your glory. So please do that. Please cause your spirit to work amongst us. Do not withhold anything good from us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It seems like we live in a state of perpetual anticipation. Some, some of you, I think some of you are probably going to go home tonight. If, if you're like I was, in my banking days, you're going to go home tonight and you're, you'll have that sort of uh moment and you're thinking about the fact that you have to get up at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the morning and go back to the grind. So you live in anticipation of that. We live in anticipation in other ways in uh, just uh, what, I guess exactly 30 days from now, uh, I think November 2nd is the date we're going to go and cast ballots. Uh, for various elections, and so this 
Every two years, we are thinking about these next elections. Every four years, the change of an, of an administration. And, and we're thinking about, uh, well, who's it going to be? Who's going to come into office? And things like this. Every Saturday, uh, we anticipate a football game. Uh, that, for me, has turned into a state of total dread. Uh, so we won't talk about that. But we live in this state of anticipation. And that's especially true for us as Christians, isn't it? Um, there is, for us, a great event on the horizon. And for us, that is supposed to be the source of our greatest anticipation. Now, when we begin to think about that day of the Lord, um, it, it, it isn't a day that's going to fill every heart with, come Lord Jesus. And Joel is going to go into that for us a little bit. For some, that's a day of dread, even though they may not think about it now. Um, as, we, as, as you read the prophets, what you are, one of the things that you're reading is, is God is directing his people to anticipate some things. The prophets developed Israel's anticipation of judgment. You can't read a single prophet without coming away from the fact that God is going to judge his people. But you also have the anticipation of something else. You know what it is? Redemption and restoration. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about Joel. We are going to spend more time in Joel thinking about the great future that lies ahead for the people of God, more time thinking about that than the days of destruction. So Joel, even though we call him the, the prophet of the day of the Lord, and you're going to see it, day of the Lord, over and over again. For us, that final day of the Lord, that's better than your birthday. And you anticipate that every year, I assume. You should anticipate the day of the Lord. That should be an aspect of your being, something that you meditate on. Christ is coming. As we come into this again, I want to make one note. Um, be care uh, Joel is filled with what we call apocalyptic literature. Um, it, and so when we encounter things like this, we're going to read at the end of chapter 1, uh, or, and in chapter 2, we're going to talk about things like the sun becoming dark. We're going to talk about the moon turning to blood and the stars being blotted out from the heavens. It's easy for us to let our imaginations run wild with things like that. Notice, do you notice that how Joel is formatted? When you look at the formatting of it, do you notice that the paragraphs are something like you might read in the Psalms? You see how they're sort of indented a different way. That's telling you that this is poetic language. All right? So this is, I'm going to make a strong point here. This is different than Genesis 1, which is not poetic language. Um, it is like the Psalms. And, and that's a clue to you that when I begin to read this, not everything is intended to be taken literally. And that's going to become important to us in just a minute. But he also uses metaphoric imagery, and so I begin to anticipate, okay, there's some word pictures here. And for Israel, too, as they were reading what Joel wrote, 
they are trying to pick up on the pictures. What does this mean for us? And we're going to do, it, do that um, ourselves. I want to make one, one, one other note here just at the outset. That one interesting aspect of Joel is the way that he divides things into fours. And I have some inclination of why that might be. But let me just show you uh, two of them. First of all, there's probably a, a, the, the, the book itself is divided into four sections. Um, one medieval Jewish commentator, so he was commentating around the, uh, on the text around the time that Martin Luther was nailing his 95 Theses. He noted that Joel ought to be divided into four sections. The first section... 1 1 to 1 12 is the destruction of the first temple. <clears throat> um, 1 13 to the end of chapter 1 is the return to Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. Chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 14 is the destruction of the second temple. When did that happen? AD 70. So what you're going to find is that when we read in Joel chapter 2, there is a reference to the apostolic era, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Your, your young men will dream dreams, your old men will have visions. That's from Joel. And then so the very end, uh, the fourth section then is the future redemption of the people. And so this was given here in 587 B.C., for the anticipation of this people, the other fours. Just notice with me real quickly as we go to chapter 1. Notice four audiences. Verse 2, hear this, you elders. Then notice with me verse 5. Awake, you drunkards. Verse 11, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. That's number 3. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Four audiences. Uh, notice with me again as you go to verse 3. There are four generations. I'm, I'm going to suggest to you it's probably three and a half. Tell your children of it. That's, so the fathers, tell your children. Uh, let your children tell their children. And their children tell another generations. Uh, they're, they're the next generation. That's four. Okay? Notice again with me in verse 4. What the cutting locust, that's number 1. Swarming locust, that's number 2. Hopping locust, that's number 3. And then finally the destroying locust. And so I'm just asking you to notice that there's this repetition of the number 4. Why is that? Is that significant? As we work through it, you could also peel out probably four, four layers of devastation to each of the audiences. But we're going to work through some of these things, and, and I'll try to, to bring some, uh, hopefully, some, some clarity or maybe some confusion. But notice with me, first of all, let's just take this audience by audience. The first audience we want to look at is the elders and the inhabitants of the land in verses 1 through 3. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children. And let their children 
uh, uh, to another generation. So the first thing that we see there is, is Joel just sort of jumps into it. He, he doesn't even describe to us what's going on. And, and so the assumption there is that he is, he is moving amongst the people who are aware of the devastation taking place to them. And he says, have you ever heard of anything like this happening? Have you ever heard of anything like this happening? But notice what the first command to, to them is, hear this, you elders, or listen. We remember as we begin here in Joel that the, the primary posture of Christian men and women is a posture of listening. Christian men and women and children ought to be very good listeners. Who are we listening to? We're listening to the Lord. And I I want just to to make a couple of passing comments about that to you. It, It is not accidental that we begin our worship with a call to worship. Why do we do that? Because we 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 begin with a call to worship from God's word because we don't presume that we can just enter into God's presence. We, we remember at the very beginning of our worship that we are here at His invitation. And you may say, Brian, you're, you're, you're just overbearing about this, but it, it, it bothers me to no end when I, when I witness a worship service and the peop- there, there's no call. People, they just begin singing. It is very presumptive. It forgets the fact that we come into the presence of God with fear, with reverence, and with awe. We begin as listeners. We are here, O Lord, to listen to you. You speak to us, and then we will respond. God calls his people to listen, so our worship follows this this pattern. We read the word. Even in, in family worship, we read the word and then respond. We are responding to God. And, and God is the one who initiates relationship with us, not we ourselves. And another, little, another little way you might apply this is in your daily devotions. Um, begin by reading God's word. Just adopt the posture that even on the daily basis, I'm not going to start with prayer or with singing. I'm going to read God's word. I'm going to be a listener. God calls his people to listen. You think of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God's people are to be a listening people. Then, after you've listened, notice what he says to them. Tell. Tell your children of it. And I would just note for you that there are four generations listed here. Tell your children. And then your children will tell their grandchildren. And then your grandchildren will tell your great-grandchildren. Now, so on the very surface of it, we might say, okay, so maybe this is going to be a temporary event. And and sort of like the Exodus, you remember where they were to tell their children and grandchildren? Or with Joshua where they set up the stones and they said, when your children come around and they see these stacked up stones, tell them what they mean. Well, here are four generations are involved. And so I'm going to ask you to, to work with me through this a little bit. I think it's actually three and a half generations. So you've got the fathers who existed at that time, the ones who are receiving this message. And they are to tell their children the message. So that's a full generation. And then a third, 
full generation and a fourth full generation. So if we take this as, as symbolic, as a, as a picture, that would equal 70 years. Each generation roughly 20 years. Why, why is the number 70 significant for us? Well, the number 70 is significant for us because it is mentioned in several places in the prophetic literature. And I won't take you to all of it right now, but you think about Daniel chapter 7, um, or Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, where he is told to anticipate 70 weeks, 70 weeks of tribulation for the people. You think of Jeremiah, where he is told that there will be 70 years And what God is depicting for the people is the time between their period and when the Messiah would appear. So if we take Jeremiah and Daniel together, it is 70 weeks of years or 490 years between the collapse of Judah and the rise of Christ. There's the anticipation now, you can follow me with that or, or not, but I think there are other things that may indicate this for us, that, that what's happening then here is that, that, that God has given Joel a glimpse of this period, this epoch in Israelite history when there would be darkness, what we call the intertestamental period, that time when there was no prophet in Israel and the rise of the prophet in Israel who was the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice with me, what are they supposed to tell their children about? Well, we know the destruction. We know Nebuchadnezzar coming in and taking the kings, Jehoiachin and etc., into captivity and cutting out his eyes and that sort of thing. But verse 4 tells us another detail. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, The destroying locust has eaten. So what is he telling them to anticipate? Well, that it could be that these are literal locusts. And there have been periods in Israelite history, even more recent history, where there have been so many locusts on the ground that you could look out and it looked like the pavement was moving with insects. So there are four waves of locusts that come upon the land. And by the end of it, they've eaten every shred of vegetation that they could possibly eat. They're even looking for um, organic material in your homes that they could take away. So it's possible that this is literal locusts. And we know that this, this happened in Israel. God sent plague and famine upon his people to discipline them for their sin. So that's possible. There's another possibility, however, and I'd like for you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to suggest to you that these are not locusts, but that they are actual armies. Let me give you some rationale for that. Look with me at Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. 
and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And here's what I would ask you to pay attention. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked. You're hearing John's language there, aren't you? After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, this is number three, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Finish with me in verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. Uh, this is repeated in Mark's account of the, of the, uh, of the uh, uh, transformation of Christ. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Turn back with me uh, to, if you will, now to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 31. You saw, O king, so Nebuchadnezzar at this point has had this, had a dream, and he had a series of dreams, and so he's asked for an interpreter, and Daniel comes as the one to interpret the dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. And and here I want you just to note on your fingers how many different body parts there are. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its middle and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. How many different types of metal do you see there or, or material? Four. Gold, 
silver, bronze, and its feet partly of iron and clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no, not a trace of them could be found. Now notice here. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So what's happening in Daniel is, is did you notice, uh, both in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and in Daniel's vision in chapter 7, there are four entities, four that arise. The, the, the vision... The vision um, that Nebuchadnezzar had of this colossus figure um, who had a head of gold, a chest and arms of, of silver, and then a middle section of bronze, and then feet of clay. There are four sections to that. And finally, that image is destroyed when a little stone... Now, get this imagery here. This giant is destroyed by a stone. Does that pique any uh, memories for you. It's a picture of, Dan- of David and Goliath. So the stone is a picture of Christ who is the king and the coming of his kingdom. And what does it do? It destroys the four. And so then in Daniel chapter 7, what we have is a picture of four kingdoms arising successively, one after the other. And the first one is eaten by the second, and the second is eaten by the third, and the third is eaten and destroyed by the fourth. And finally, what happens? The Ancient of Days descends, and he sets up his throne, and he rules over everything. There's this this Jewish scholar uh, or commentator who is looking back he, he's looking at Joel and he's thinking of all of this and this is what remark he makes. He interprets this to coincide with the exiles of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. What God is showing to Daniel these 70 weeks, this 490 years in prophetic terms, God is showing all of His prophets this period when they will be without a prophet, but they are showing, He is showing them as well that the great prophet is coming. And when His kingdom comes and He sets it up on the earth, all of these former prophet uh, or kingdoms will be made nothing. And what will happen to that little stone? It grows and covers the earth. In verse 4, perhaps what we have is, is similar to what Daniel is presenting to us, that these are four kingdoms. The successive kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And what we learn of them is that as they come upon Israel in wave after wave after wave, there is destruction upon destruction upon destruction. And so this morning, remember that this morning Jesus is looking upon His people And he is moved with compassion for them. Why? Because they have been heaped upon and heaped upon and heaped upon and heaped upon. Now, according to God's direction. But there's nothing left. The other thing that you should note is that this plague is particularly related to the eighth plague of the locusts. You see, God... 
why, why the imagery of locusts, we would have to, to ask. Why does God choose locusts if he's, depicting, if he's depicting actual armies, actual successive kingdoms? Well, because he's reminding his people that they, the, the plagues that they at one time were spared, they will now endure because they have turned away from him. That's the first audience, the elders. God reveals to them that they and successive generations will undergo his his wrath. The next next group that he addresses are the drunkards. Look with me at verses 5 through 10. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine. Here's the picture that we get in this next section. There are men... I think that you should probably picture these men on the parapets of the wall. These are the men who are aligned. Uh, They they are the watchers on the wall. Uh, These are the guys who are the protectors of Israel. They should have been like the sons of Issachar who knew the seasons and they are alert. But instead, what are they? They have spent the night at the bottle and they have drunk their fill. They have taken, that is, the fruit of the vine, the abundance that God has given them, and they have used it to excess. And instead of being watchers on the wall, they have become drunkards. And so God claps his hands, and he wakes them up, and he raises them up, and he says, now look, and what is at the footsteps of the wall? Babylon. It's time for war. You can imagine this, can't you? They've spent the night drinking and carousing, and suddenly they are awakened, and they're still in this drunken stupor, and God is telling them, gird up your loins, get your sword on your thigh. It's time to go fight. An army is at your doorstep. And while they have been drinking, while they have been enjoying themselves rather than watching out for the flock of God, this nation has come up against his land, powerful and beyond number. Why is that significant? Well, because God is using of these people the very words that should have been used of Israel, who should have been beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. Now the promise that was given to the tribe of Judah. Remember, they are the the lion of God's descendants. They are the lion of God's people. The ones who should have been uh, strong and mighty. uh, From whom the the scepter would never depart. Now they are the ones who are in the lion's teeth. The lion consuming the lion. And this lion that has come upon them has laid waste my vine splintered my fig tree, stripped off their bark and thrown it down, the branches being made white. What do we have here? Well, the vine is Israel. They are his choice people. They are the fig tree. This takes us back actually to Hosea chapter 9. Turn back just a couple of pages to Hosea chapter 9. Pick up with me in verse 10. 
Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. You see there, Israel is the fig tree. Israel's the grapevine. Israel is the one who should have borne fruit uh, for the glory of God. And now what do we find? But the fig tree has been plucked up. The branches cut off. They're laying on the ground in devastation. This is why we see that Jesus himself, as he's going back and forth in that final day before his crucifixion, remember that he is going back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany. And he'd go and spend time with Lazarus and the family and the sisters, and then he'd come back into Jerusalem. And he goes into Bethany, and there's that one day when he's with the disciples and he sees this fig tree off in the distance. And Jesus noticed that the fig tree is not bearing fruit. He's drawing on the imagery of Joel. And he curses the fig tree and it's dead because it will not bear fruit. While the drunkards have been enjoying themselves and taking the spoils that God has provided for them and misusing them, God has brought an army against them and they didn't even know it. And so in verse 8, look what he tells them. Lament. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Um, It was illegal in Jerusalem for a young man to go to war within one year of his marriage. This is a good policy. So a young man would get married, and he could not be sent to battle. He could not be conscripted by the army until the day after his one-year anniversary. But here, God is telling us that all bets are off. Now it's time to lament. And notice what he says, and we'll just, we'll finish with this part. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil um, languishes. So not only has war come, but God is telling them that the time for worship is over. The time for worship is over. As long as you watch and pray, as long as the shepherds of the sheep are doing their their work, like we talked about this morning, then the time for worship is now. But notice what God does. It's not just that he forbids them to worship. It's not that he says, stop coming to my house. Don't pretend like you love me. Stop coming to my house. What God does is he literally takes away from them the means of worship. He dries up their plants so that they don't have the raw material to bring grain offerings to him. He takes it away. We... A couple of weeks ago, we, we noticed how difficult it was for us to go out and find a pianist. And praise the Lord that Stan was able to step in and, and accompany our worship. But imagine if the Lord blotted out musical talent from the, from the land. That, that's the picture. He's saying, I don't, I don't want your worship. And to keep you from trying to abominate my worship and bringing it to you, I'm drying up the means. And so the priests, they're left mourning. The ministers of the Lord are left, all they can do is mourn. All they can do is weep. 
because the fields are destroyed and the grain is is destroyed. God is telling His people here, and He's telling us some very important, important things. One, He is reminding us, as, as we say over and over and over again, um, that he, he, listen, that God cares more about the purity of His people than about their number. As, as we look around tonight, that's an important thing for us to remember. God cares about the purity of His people. He, he cares that His people are pursuing Him with their whole heart. He wants your whole heart, all of your affections to be stayed on Him and committed to obeying Him. And we shouldn't deceive ourselves as we see here. We shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that God, um, that God is pleased by if we come and just sort of go through the steps of worship and our heart is not in it. He doesn't share His glory with anyone. He won't share His glory with anyone else. He wants our whole soul. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You tonight as we think about these words and and we remember Your power. You have it at Your fingertips to stir up one nation um, against another or to give one nation, peace, and not another. That, that's within your power. It is within your power to cause our p- produce and our beef cattle and our chickens and our, 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 poor, our pigs all to flourish and, and to give forth um, uh, more produce than we can possibly handle to provide for your people, uh, to give so much wealth Uh, that silver or gold becomes pavement on our streets, filler for our potholes. You you can do all that, Lord. But Father, you also see fit at times to withhold those things. And we we know, we know that that you are orchestrating all things for your people. Um, So we ask that you would help us. Give us eyes to see what it is that you desire for us. Give us hearts so that we would desire what you desire. That what you take pleasure in, we would take pleasure in. And what you hate, we also would hate. Turn our hearts where you will, Lord, so that you will be most glorified in us. We pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen.